This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. This week, by way of segue between Sophocles and the Greek theater, to our next book, the great romantic gothic novel by Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, we have chosen to feature a romantic take on the Greeks, Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats, not to be misquoted by what seems more natural, which would be Ode to a Grecian Urn. Well, that's true and pretty perceptive. There are far more odes to things than there are odes on things, although Keats does have more than one. Uh, and obviously you would expect the ode to be to something or to someone because as we talked about in our discussion of odes, and if you didn't listen to that, go back to our discussion. The most prolific ode writer I know of is Paulo Neruda, and he wrote his odes to lots and lots of things. Uh, but what you're going to see uh, is perhaps the most beloved ode, at least in the English language. Uh, and Keats, by design, has made this poem or ode so cryptic and enchanting that no one really says with any true authority, or at least they shouldn't, much about who this poem is to, what it's about, what it actually means. We're just supposed to be really confused in some sense. And really at the end of our discussion and when we talk about what we feel is and what Keats felt was his contribution to the world and what he calls negative capability, that's supposed to make total sense. The only thing people agree on, and Keats would say that we should agree on, is that it's truly beautiful. And this poem is truly, truly beloved because it is beautiful. And I'm not just saying that. That is truth. 
You see truth and beauty's coming up. <laughs> oh, no. A pun. So you're saying everyone loves this poem because they don't know what it means or they love it in spite of it? You're getting ahead of where I want us to get in this discussion with that question a little bit. But short answer, yes and yes. Uh, and a lot of what this poem is trying to say is that let it be what it is. Uh, that will allow you to feel good about your place in the world in some sense. But first, before we delve into a little bit of that ambiguity, let's go over a little bit about what it means to be a romantic writer, uh, and especially for the British and their context, uh, because they really do kind of own this genre in my mind. Everyone loves the British romantics, and of course, we're not talking about romance like, I don't know, Meg Ryan or Audrey Hepburn or... British equivalents of those women, but <laughs> although we love them too, but uh, romantic writers are those who come out of very specific time and they had a certain way of thinking about the world uh, that lasted. It kind of started about five years uh, in, at, at the end of the 18th century and kind of takes us into the beginning of the 1800s. So Keats was born in 1795 and he's going to die in 1821. A very short life, sad life. And a lot of what he embodies in his writing and his thinking is what romanticism is all about. Well, historically, the world is really changing when he's born and his short time on Earth. Um, there, there was the French Revolution and the French principles of liberty and equality and fraternity, and they were extremely influential on the continent of Europe, uh, but not just there. Those ideas impacted all the Western world, all the way into the Americas, not just North America, but just focusing on England, we can see patterns that will eventually extend worldwide. First of all, the English extended voting rights to middle-class males and abolished slavery by 1832, fortunately, without a war. Uh, those are two big social and political changes that represent obviously big results of a change in thinking. People like Jean-Jacques Rousseau led people to think about themselves and each other differently with ideas that seem obvious today, like man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. People begin to allow themselves to really think more emotionally instead of this sort of um, scientific mindset of the Enlightenment. Uh, thoughts like allowing love and quality of life to matter for everyone led to all kinds of considerations and new thoughts. Like people should be able to work in safety. And that resulted in the first law governing factory safety, if you can believe there's a connection. Well, of course I can believe it. And the romantic poets embody every bit of that and more. And, you know, us English types, and I don't mean like the language from Britain, but people who study English, we like to think that people like poets and dreamers and writers are always on the front end of making the way people think about the world be a little bit different than it was before. And maybe that's why we love romantic writers. They wanted to write about the common men. And many of them, like John Keats, were common men. And you think of the writers before them as being very fancy lords, sitting in castles, writing. Uh, but these guys weren't like that. They were writing about common experiences. And here's a kind of funny thing. They were called, well, John Keats was part of this group that they call the Cockney School, which was an kind of like an ethnic slur. It was a bad thing to be called. If that if you're from the Cockney School, people were trying to offend you and say that you're kind of lowbrow and that sort of thing. So 
the idea being the romantics didn't mind that kind of thing. They were interested in the natural world. They were interested in the inner world. They were definitely interested in questioning the authorities of the day. And they were definitely challenging the traditions of the day. You could think of them as like the hippies of their gener- generation. And they were really, truly challenging a lot of social norms that we would find inappropriate in some sense even today people like mary shelley especially they're experimenting with ideas of free love drugs and dangerous lifestyles behaviors and sometimes they were dying young not just of disease but like all kinds of stuff (laughs) well you say hippie but i say rock star culture uh but interestingly there's the cyclical nature of humanity and the tensions between chaos and order that are the essence of being alive on planet Earth are often reflected in the arts. Yes, I think that kind of dichotomy is a wonderful way to look at romantic poets, actually, specifically John Keats. Poor Keats was sadly hypersensitive to all the tensions of life, and he was able to express them really beautifully. His life was so tragic. First of all, Well, this isn't tragic, but his dad is not an aristocratic earl or one of those kind of people. But instead, he's a guy who takes care of horses at an inn. He's a true working man. So he is raised in this humble setting. And sadly, his dad is going to die from an accident at the age of nine. His mom is going to remarry a guy who's not that awesome. And then she dies of tuberculosis when he's 14 years old. So now he, together with his four siblings, are all orphans. They're raised in some way by this stepdad, but mostly by his grandmother. And then she dies four years after that. And then that same year, his baby sister dies. And then just a little bit later, two years after that, his brother is going to die of tuberculosis. And all of this, you know, he has to drop out of school, which is not surprising under these same kind of circumstances. They have no money. He's apprenticed out to become a doctor. I don't think that job was very prestigious back then. The way that he talks about it, it's like a downgrade from regular school. Yes, it doesn't carry the uh, the respect that it may today. And it was a dangerous job if you consider what we know today about germs. They weren't even aware of germ theory back then. Uh, and it clearly wasn't his calling for what we know of his weak health. He got into writing and got published really early and decided to go for the big breakout writing career before he even got his medical license. He clearly didn't like life in the city. He found it a lonely, jumbled heap of murky buildings, to use his words. And the only other medical practicing uh, I could find that he did was the nursing of his brother, the one you mentioned that died of tuberculosis. Truly, and this is my humble opinion, and I have to be careful of voicing opinion about somebody so well-loved and studied as John Keats. Uh, There are lots of people that just really know a lot about this guy. But my impression is, is that John Keats walked this shadowy line almost his whole life between life and death. And it was this perspective that gave him a really passion for life and a perspective that we can find appealing to this day. He stared at death all the time and he allowed it to break his heart and gave him a lot of questions, but he doesn't have this dark hopelessness like we see in Edgar Allan Poe or something like that. He's not despairing like we're going to see later on with the nihilists that are going to come after him. He looks at mortality and loss 
and beauty and love. And he's going to write about these things. He's sad in some sense. He has this poem called, When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be. But you can even tell from that title that there's a sweetness to his work, maybe even an innocence and this idea that I'm never going to get to finish living, but I want to live every moment that I have. He's not naive about the problems or troubles of the world, but he is able to kind of accept them. Yes, and his life truly was cut short. He got sick on a hiking trip to Scotland in the summer of 1818 and really never seemed to recover, although he did still continue to take care of his brother all the way until he died. And never mind that he fell in love with Fanny Prime, but they couldn't get married because he has no money and was very sick. So by the age of 24, I think even he really understood, I'm getting ready to die. He moves to Rome because he's a doctor and he's coughing up blood. They think that, you know, maybe the climber, the climber, the warmer climate would do something to save his life. But on February 23, 1821, he dies. And he never knew, he never knew he was going to be famous. He asked that they write this on his tombstone. He said, please write, here lies one whose name was written water. And he wanted that instead of his actual name. But they ignored that, thank goodness. <laughs> yes. And wow, what a statement on uh, what he understood his life to be, actually written in water. So his name actually is on his grave in the Protestant graveyard in Rome. And, of course, there is the Keats Shelley Memorial House right next to the Spanish Steps in Rome. That's a nice tribute, really. So tell us, Christy, why are we reading Ode on a Grecian Urn? Well, I would say because it's a personal favorite, but that's a cliche. It's everyone's personal favorite, literally. Uh, there are thousands and tens of thousands of commentaries on this poem, more than maybe any other poem I've ever uh, tried to look at. Uh, I read one, some things like from professors who teach this poem. There's professors really that teach this poem every year, and they have for over 50 years, and they say that they don't ever get tired of reading and teaching it year after year, if you're going to Google or go to the library and type in literary criticism of this poem, you'll see it as an example of whatever theory of poetry is out there. Um, every school of criticism claims this is an excellent example. The feminists, the new critics, the deconstructionists, the new historians, the reader response people. I mean, you name it, they claim it. <laughs> Everybody's worked with it. Yes. And every single person, when you read these things, they read them so differently and understand it so differently. And so I'm just going to offer this disclaimer. We're going to read about it and we're going to think about Well, We're not going to read about it. We're going to read it and think about it as best as we can. And I hope that you'll be able to listen to the poem and understand it the way you want to understand it. Please think of it this way. At least this is how I think about it. Good poetry does a few things. The first thing it does is it gives you an idea you hadn't had before. You're supposed to think, huh, I never thought of that. And it's supposed to be beautiful. Like you say it in a way, ooh, that sounds pretty to my ear. Or maybe they put together descriptions of things that you've never heard described just like that in that way. So listen to that in your earbuds or your car speakers or wherever you're listening uh, to the words and let him create these pictures in your minds. And maybe your ideas will be different. I'm sure they will. Uh, because the genius of this man and the way he writes is 
you're able to have this perfect balance in your head of things that you can understand and things that you can. It's like he puts this cloak of invisibility around himself and walks you around all these little words and you get to decide what you see. So have I built it up enough? Um, I think you have. Uh, and it, I don't know if I'm more or less confused from when we started, but uh, not to confuse anyone on what the poem is about. Can we at least agree that it's about a Greek jar? No, we cannot agree on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then I have no idea. No. Well, and this is a tangent, but it's a little cool. Um, so it's called Ode on a Grecian Urn, but there may not have actually been an urn. There may have been an urn. There's no evidence that he ever saw an urn. But during Keats's lifetime, the Elgin Marble showed up in London. We know this for a fact. And we also know for a fact that Keats went to see it. P- pretty cool. So although uh, some people think there was a jar, he's talking about a jar, there was an urn, there may not have been an urn. It could have been a made-up urn in his imagination. But there is there are people that think that he saw this Greek piece of art that had just come over from Greece. And this was kind of the inspiration for what he wrote about. So For those of us who don't know about this 200-year-old scandal, tell us about the Elgin Marble scandal. (laughs) I have to point out, first of all, it's not about marbles that (laughs) that come from Elgin. Uh, Basically, it's it's a classical Greek marble sculpture that was in the Parthenon. And uh, so what happens is Thomas Bruce, who's the seventh lord of uh, Elgin— and a British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire is basically accused of stealing it and bringing it back to his home in England. And so there's a lot of controversy about who should be owners of it now. And it's just a a, a very important antiquity. So do the Greeks want it? Yes, they do. Take a second and look it up and, and find about the story. It's a very interesting story. And we've actually been to the Acropolis Museum where this space is, where this occurred. Well, uh, we don't know if there's actually an urn. So what we're going to do is, in our minds, let's look at the rest of the title and think of it as if there were uh, an urn. So it's called Ode to a Grecian Urn. I said it wrong. It's called Ode on a Grecian Urn. And if you think about what an urn would be, it would be like a burial, something, a jar. Uh, and it's usually painted. And so we're going to look at the paintings that are on the urn. And so the paintings in some sense maybe are what, are we giving tribute to the urn itself? Are we giving tribute to the paintings that are on the urn? Are the paintings on the urn giving tribute to something else? So you can see that there's all these layers of confusion. But we do know this. Um, The first word of the poem is thou. That means you. So clearly... He is talking, or there is a speaker, talking to the urn in some sense. So something is going to be personified. This urn is going to be personified. So Gary, when you think in your mind, you have this urn. Why don't you read for us this poem, stanza by stanza. We'll read a stanza, and then we'll chat about it. I know that's not the best way. Really, ideally, you'd read the whole thing, and then go back and read it and chat about it. But we want to save some time. Uh, because it's kind of long, and we don't want to be talking about this for forever. But um, we'll read a stanza, and then we'll see what picture is on the urn and what he wants to say with that picture. Then we'll turn the urn a little bit to the side, 
in our minds, of course, and then look at the next picture, and then we'll go all the way around the urn just like that till we get to the end. Will that work? That'll work. That's a lot of imagery to hold in my mind here, but I will do the best I can. All right, you ready? Yep, let's read it. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. What leafring legend haunts about thy shape of deities and mortals, or of both, in Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these? What maidens lost? What mad pursuit, what struggle to escape, what pipes and timbrels, what wild ecstasy? Good, thanks. First thing to notice, and let's just do this the easy way. When you want to crack open something, you always want to start the easier and then go harder. And a lot of those words, I think, may have been hard to grasp in your mind. So we're going to take them apart little by little. But notice first the rhyme scheme. Now, the rhyme scheme means that last line, the last word of each line is going to rhyme with another word. So the rhyme scheme here is A, B, A, B. In other words, the first and the third line and the second and the fourth line rhyme. And then we're going to go to C, D, E, C, D, E. And this is going to be the way the whole poem goes with one exception all the way through he's going to follow this simple structure a b a b c d e c d e now that doesn't mean much to anybody today but what we can see that he's borrowing from the sonnet writers now a sonnet is a 14 line love poem more or less is basically how you can think of it and the two guys that wrote sonnets were shakespeare and he always wrote everything a b a b c d c d e f e f he he went all the way down like that and this guy named Petrarch, he also wrote sonnets. And he wrote the one where you divide it in two sections, and CDE, CDE comes from him. Now, Petrarch's poems, let me just say, were always about unrequited love, poor guy. He <laughs> never got the girl. But that's beside the point. The idea is that he's, to some sense, this is about love. Love of what? Love in its essence. So he's kind of suggesting that just with the form. It's an iambic pentameter. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. The human heart. So, <laughs> so the form itself is going to suggest, in the subtle way, the ways that forms always do, that there's something lovely or loving about what we're supposed to see. So then we see, thou still unravished bride of quietness, foster child. And he's going to say, Sylvan historian. So this is what we call an apostrophe. An apostrophe is a Greek device. It's not a punctuation mark. That's a different apostrophe. But an apostrophe is when you talk to someone or something that isn't there and can't talk back to you. So if my phone keeps reading and ringing and I can't find it, I might yell, phone, where are you? That's an apostrophe because you are talking to something that can't respond. If you talk to a child who's not in the room, that's an apostrophe. So he's going to address the, the poem or address the urn, and he's going to talk to it, but he calls it these things, an unravished bride of quietness. And that's where you see when I say that poets use language that you've never heard before, you have to wonder, what's an unravished bride? What is a bride of quietness? That's a strange thing to call somebody. What is a foster child of silence? What a sylvan historian. Uh, sylvan is a forest. So, th the, so this urn is three things. It's a bride. It's a foster child. It's a sylvan historian. And hence begins the questions. How do these things 
connect? Why is the bride quiet? Uh, why do we have to have a foster child? What do these things have in common? Uh, but even look even more closely, it says this, still unravished bride of science. Does that mean the bride is standing still? Is she unravished, uh, but she might be ravished? We don't know. So you have a little bit of fun little wordplay going there, however you want to read it. But all, all the time, what we're basically trying to say, he's looking at this urn, and there's clearly a picture. I see a girl. Uh, of course, you see forest. It's a flowery tale. So it's going to be telling us a story. Look at there. The leaf fringe legend. But look, it haunts. That's a kind of interesting word. It haunts about the shape. And, and he's thinking, what are these people? Are they deities? Are they mortals? Are they both? And we see these questions. What men or gods are these? What maidens? Luth, what mad? What are they doing? What struggle to escape? And then he's going to go with some sound. What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy. So it's kind of a happy thing as he thinks about what could have inspired the picture on this urn. Who painted it? What were they thinking of? And it's these kind of thoughts that take us to the next stanza. Want to read that one? Sure. Oh, I did want to point out one more thing before we move on. I know, it's a lot. And you could talk for a long time about every one of these stanzas. But this is another thing to point out about poetry. Look at all the S's in there. Still, silence, foster, historian, sylvan, haunts, shapes, SSS, the winds of time. (laughs) You're supposed to hear it. I mean, you're supposed to. Yeah, there it is. He's trying to recreate in your mind. You're looking at the urn. And sometimes when you go to museums, you kind of do that when you look at it's quiet in there. There's they're always quiet in museums and people are staring at things from the past that are supposed to be speaking. And there is this kind of breeze of the past, the breeze of the story of the mystery of what it means. That's a kind of supposed to come into you as the viewer. And that's the spirit of kind of what I think we're supposed to be seeing here. Well, the, to interject a psychological note, uh, you're projecting yourself into the art, and artists want you to do that. They want you to do it with poetry. They want you to do it with paintings, with music. You are supposed to look at it and take some piece of you and connect it into the story. So it's thematic apperception test, kind of. Yeah, Keats would definitely say that's, and he doesn't want to tell you exactly what to see. He wants you to hear it and see it for yourself. All right, second stanza. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Fair youth, beneath the trees thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, thou winning near the goal, yet do not grieve. She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. You know, interestingly enough, this is the stanza that I remember the most from when I first heard this poem back in college. And, and I'll tell you why. That First of all, that line, heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. That is a paradox. When, and that means when you, it doesn't seem like on first pass that that could make any sense, but in a sense... 
He's invoking the beauty or the better beauty, think of it that way, of our imagination. Things are always uh, more beautiful in our minds than they are uh, in real life. You can think of it, you know, this is kind of a bad analogy, but when you read a book and it's about this gorgeous guy and it's a romance and he kisses the girl and you're all into this romance and then they make a movie of it. And those people are never as good looking as the ones that were in your mind in the book. They can't be, sadly. They're mere mortal actors. And the beauty of your uh, imagination far exceeds anything that would actually happen in real life. So he's taking that concept and applying it to music. Do you think it does apply to music? Oh, yes, very much so. So the heard melodies are sweet, but the ones that you hear in your head uh, are unsweeter. So in your mind, you're playing the most beautiful music in the world, more beautiful than if I was playing something for you, so to speak. And so in that sense, he can say, uh, play on, pipe, soft pipe, play on. Not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. So the idea of the no tone is prettier than the tone. But then he's going to take the same idea and apply it to relationships. Not ours, of course, but in general. So you have this fair youth beneath the trees. You can't leave. Why can't he leave? Because he's etched in stone on the urn. He's stuck there forever. And he says, thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. So in other words, the trees are even better off on the urn because in real life, they shed their leaves and they have to die, the cycle of life. But if you get etched in in the springtime on the urn, you're stuck. So here it is. Thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. He's going to say this. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss the winning near the goal. So in other words, you're getting ready. So there's this guy, and he's getting ready to kiss the girl. And where he's painted on there, he's just about to kiss her, but he can't ever kiss her. So he's stuck in that eternal tension of not getting the girl but that's the good part, Keats is going to say. She cannot fade. Though thou, that, though thou hast not thy bliss, forever wilt thou love and she be fair. The idea being is once you kiss her, maybe you won't love her as much. <laughs> she won't be as beautiful. as She'll never be as beautiful than in that moment right before you kiss right her. Right before you capture the prize. <laughs> Present company excluded. Uh, of course. So this, the chain, no one dies in these poems. You know, the love is always at that most exciting moment. The thrill is still there. And that's, in his thinking, the happiest place to be. Should we go on? Sure. Ah, uh, happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young. All breathing human passion far above that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. And so you see the excitement of where we left off in stanza two. All that happy, happy, happy. Yes. I mean, he's just, that's where you see sound effects really reiterating the meaning of the poem and all these, uh, Anaphora is more happy, forever, forever panting. And you see kind of this um, sensual imagery in a sense. Ooh, forever panting, breathing, passion, burning forehead, 
parching tongue. Oh, the excitement of life is just going on and on and on. That's the tension of the moment that we're supposed to, to feel. And notice that there's so much heat imagery. And the reason why I point that out, it's the energy of being alive that's heightened here in this third stanza, which here's the irony. The urn is cold because even though it's etched forever and it can't move and you get to stay at that place, it doesn't have the heat and the image energy and the, and the chemistry of those things which cannot be forever. And that's the tension. Right? Stanza four is going to shift and we're going to see a little bit of sadness here. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadest thou that heifer lowing at the skies, in all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore, or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. And here... Remember, we've turned the urn, and this part of the urn is almost a sad tone. I don't know if it doesn't say they're really going to anything sad, but the words are kind of sad. But it's also a spiritual tone. Mysterious priest. There's an altar. There's a sacrifice. You see garlands dressed. So you see that a lot of the things about life that are sad, there's some emptiness there. What little town by river or seashore, is the, there's a peaceful citadel it's more spiritual you feel those s's again like something is going away the winds of time are coming again this the little town is emptied it's a pious morn and of course again you see the the um the the pun mourning but you also mourn can be sad too it can be if uh, it can be a sad word if if not that one but it sounds like it so will silent be not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. Again, there's, so that's, there's life there. There's sad there. Uh, but there is an essence of, of humanity that he's trying to get you to look at. This is the life of, that I see on the urn. It's all adding up to a lot of wistfulness. It is. And this is where we're going to end in the last and the final stanza. O attic shape, fair attitude with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou silent form dost tease us out of thought. As doth eternity, cold pastoral, when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in the midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And, of course, this has been so controversial, this last stanza. T.S. Eliot hated it. He said, Keats ruined his poem, the last stanza. He liked such a cliche. Let me interrupt that for a second. (laughs) It wasn't a cliche when he wrote it. Well, it's not even now. And I I like it. And I really do. Because here's what I, I think is the essence of this. And like I said, this is kind of those things that... People can talk about and argue, but he's looking again. He's looking at the the last little, I guess, the stuff that goes around the top, like decorations on the uh, on the on the urn. He's looking at the attic shape. That's like the Athenian classical way that they decorated these things. And you see the marble men and the maidens overwrought. Now these images are cold. They're not warm. We're not heating. There's no passion here. He's calling. He actually says. 
a cold pastoral. In other words, it's a, a cold, that's almost an ironic thing to say, an oxymoron. Pastorals are usually warm, but this one's cold because the generations have wasted away. The people are gone. The urn is there. Thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours. And he says, a friend to man. So the urn is a friend to man. We can look at it and we can see life. And what can we see? And he puts this last line in quotes and nobody knows why. And there's like all these versions of why he, why is the last couple of lines in quotation marks? Is it the, is that an epigram that he wants to say is on the urn? Is that the urn talking back to us? What is the purpose of the quotation marks? But I don't know that it matters because here's the idea. And it's one of your chiasmuses. It says this, Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. So what can you know about this world? Well, you can see the beauty in it and maybe that's enough. And we see that is really kind of his life's philosophy. He wrote a bunch of letters at the end of his life and he was trying to describe this concept. And I want to bring go back to this of negative capability, because he really believed this was his contribution as a poet. He says there's uncertainties, there's mysteries in life, there's doubts. And when you can face them without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, then you can find some sort of peace, some sort of joy, some sort of appreciation uh, for the beauty of the world. And that's what he's trying to do, he says, in his poetry. What he says is poetry should be great and it should allow us to enter our soul. It shouldn't startle or amaze us. It should strengthen our intellect, help us make us minds up really about nothing uh, and let us just kind of have thoughts about what really is uh, in the world. And that's really kind of the whole essence of this poem and kind of why people like it. Look at it. Think about it. Don't feel like you have to judge it. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I think you need to get comfortable with living in some negative capability, <laughs> living with the tension of the moment, which is a great uh, lesson to take away from this poem. Yeah, I think it's what people like about it. You know, my guy, Matthew Arnold, he was a literary critic himself, and he wrote about Keats. And I want to end with what he said about him, because he he said that the yearning passion for the beautiful, which was with Keats, as he himself truly says, the master passion is not a passion of the sensuous or sentimental man. It's not a passion of the poet that Keats had an intellectual or spiritual passion. In his last days, Keats wrote, I have loved the principle of beauty in all things. And if I had had time, I would have had made myself remembered. How interesting that he said that about himself. Because what Matthew Arnold says is he has made himself remembered and remembered as not merely a sensual poet. Uh, For to see things in their beauty is to see things in their truth. And Keats knew it. And this beauty goes not only truth, but joy goes along with her. And Keats saw and said that too. It is no small thing to have so loved the principle of beauty as to perceive the necessary relation of beauty with truth and both with joy. And I think that's why he could write pretty things, even though he knew his time on this earth was so very short. And Matthew Arnold ends his discussion of Keith saying, no one else in English poetry 
save Shakespeare, has an expression quite the fascinating felicity of Keats in his perfection of loveliness. So it's a nice thing. It's certainly a nice compliment. It's exceedingly high (laughs) praise to be, uh, say, you're only surpassed by Shakespeare in your abilities as a a young man who died at the age of 26. So... um, does that wrap it up for us today? I think it is. I know we flew through that. There was a lot there, and it's worth probably reading again and thinking about again. Well, people have been thinking about it for Oh, and they will continue, <laughs> so forever. Well, Give it a go. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for being with us on our journey into John Keats and to looking at Ode on a Grecian Urn, not Ode to a Grecian Urn. Uh, thanks for being with us. Tell your friends about us. Bring them along for the ride. You can follow us on Facebook, on Instagram. You can go to our howtolovelitpodcast.com page. Peace out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.